theological masculinity. What makes a man a man? What is a man? This is a massive question today, and it's a question that most of the time I, I see answered wrongly because the answer comes from a disordered way of thinking about human nature and what actually makes a man a man. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. We are found on any podcast platform that you can think of, Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm, you name it. If you're watching on YouTube, click that subscribe button down below and the bell for continued notifications. You do not want to miss content when I drop it. The causes of man, the nature of man, the acts of man, the social positioning of man. We're going to talk about all these today. If, you have a, if you've had any questions about any of these things, this is the episode for you. I'm going to try to cram all of this into a single podcast. We'll see how that goes. I don't want to get too confusing. I don't want to get too complex. Uh, but at the same time, I want this to be very helpful, and I want it to be as comprehensive as possible. We're going to begin by looking at the causes of man. Then we're going to switch to looking at the nature of man. Then we're going to look at something of the acts of man. And when I say man, I use it in the most technical sense. I mean the male species of humanity. All right. Um, and uh, what distinguishes male from female kind of thing. Then we're going to answer social questions. Now, oftentimes the issue that I see uh, online, and I think this happens in a lot of churches as well, of course, my main concern here is is the church and what goes on in the church and pastoral theology and, and uh, historical Baptist retrieval and things of that nature uh, for pastoral use, is I see social questions being answered before more fundamental metaphysical questions are answered. So we're not really talking much about the causes of man. We're not talking much, talking much about the nature of man, or we are, but we're trying to answer the nature of man from specific acts of man in society or in various circumstances, and as a result, we're letting the cart drive the horse. We have to start with that which is more principal. We have to start with that which is more fundamental and work our way out to the social interactions and the, the activities of man rather than starting there and working our way inward. We need to start inwardly and work our way outwardly. And so we're going to look first at the causes of man. To do that, I'm going to bring something up here on the screen. You who are watching YouTube get the added benefit of a graphic that has some verbiage on it. The causes of man. You can see I'm using the fourfold causality. Uh, this fourfold distinction in causality goes back to Aristotle. And of course, this is a distinction in causality that was received into Christianity very early on. And I would say it's it's part and parcel of biblical Christianity. You see this fourfold pattern of causality even assumed in the scriptures. But you see it in the early church, the patristic era. You see it in the medieval era. You see it in the Reformation. It's carried on up through the uh, post-Reformation Reformed Orthodox, the the Puritans. And, um, and it's a it's a help to us today. So we're going to look at the causes of man, the efficient cause, the material cause, the formal cause, and the final cause. And you can see up here on the screen, I have summary statements of what each of those are. So we're going to begin at the efficient cause. The efficient cause asks the question of who done it, right? So essentially the efficient cause is asking the question, who did it or what did it? If you see a ball flying through the sky, uh, it's valid to ask the question, you know, what did that? Or who did that? Who hit that ball, right? If a, if a ball comes crashing through your window, you're immediately going to look outside wondering who did that, all right? And 
And and to answer that question, you would need to uh, to respond with the efficient cause. The one who hit the ball through your window is the efficient cause of the ball ending up in your living room or your kitchen or wherever it ended up or wherever it ended up. So the efficient cause asks the or answers the question, who did it, right? And in this case, when it comes to man, uh, who made man? God made man. You look at Genesis two seven for example, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And so you have the effect. You have man, and then you're invited to ask the question, well, who did it, right? Well, God did it. It says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, the breath of nostrils part, leading man to become a a living being, is going to be very relevant to us when we get to the formal cause. But just starting out here, most basically, who did it? Well, it was God. God created man. The material cause answers the question of what is man made out of? What is man composed of, we might ask? And that would be a corporeal body, you know, our flesh and blood and bones and arteries and veins, our brain, our lungs. You know, you think about all those parts and all those parts come together to form our body. It's a composite, isn't it? And so it relies on its various parts to be what it is. And so the material cause of man is the body. Of course, when we're looking at the generation of the first man uh, by God, we see that man's body was formed out of the dust of the ground. Uh, God formed man of the dust of the ground. And so the material cause is the dust of the earth. Um, It's it's the raw material of the earth that God used to form man's body. And so that's the material cause of man. Now, females have a distinct material cause. This is part of what causes females to be different than males right? Uh, the female material cause is comes from the man's side. It comes from the man's rib. It's not out of the dust of the ground. It's, it's out of man. It's from the side of man. And so woman is of man, created by God, um, and she's made for man, right? And so that's one of the reasons that male and female are different. There are other reasons, of course, um, uh, and those other reasons would reside in the formal cause. What's the formal cause of man? Well, it's his reasonable soul. And we're asking the formal cause. We're asking the question of what is it? All right. Uh, What is it that causes man to be what he is? And we're asking the question of essence. Uh, We're asking the question of nature. What is the form of man? What is the isness of man? And it would be his reasonable soul. It wouldn't just be a sensitive soul, you know, something like the animals have, where they can, you know, uh, you know, have desires, you know, for food or something like that. They can, they have lower passions that guide them in hunting and things like that. No, this is this is a reasonable soul. This is a soul that is in, in, endowed with the propensity to contemplate God and to ask questions self-consciously um, and and so on, among other things. Uh, what sets man apart from the animal world? What makes man man, as opposed to an animal is his reasonable soul. And so answering the question of whatness is the soul of man. That's the formal cause. It's the reasonable soul of man. Now, there's another reason why at the level of the formal cause, there's a distinction between male and female. So there's a distinction between male and female, obviously in the material cause. And you can see that in the first creation, uh, in the initial creation of male and female in Genesis 2. 
And we looked at that already, but there's also an ongoing material difference between male and female. That's obviously the case that their bodies are different. Their physiology, their physiology is different. Their biology is different. Um, but also at the level of the soul, at the, at the level of the formal cause, there's a, a difference between male and female. Um, Turretin says uh, this. He's looking at the creation of man, and he says, For from the different temperament and humors of the body, different propensities and affections are also born in our souls. And so differences in body leads to different differences in, in the soul and, and, or vice versa. We might be able to flip that, uh, although I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but there is a difference. What, what makes man different from woman is found in the material and formal causes of each. Uh, not found in the efficient cause. Obviously, both male and female have the same efficient cause. It's God. Um, not found in the final cause. Both male and female have the same final end the same goal which is to glorify god and enjoy him forever but in the material cause and the formal cause there are substantial differences that that make male and female different uh which is to say that in the material and formal causes in those categories you have what makes man man in particular and that gets us to a more fundamental idea of what man is it's not circumstantial it's not cultural it's not socially conditioned. It actually starts at something more formal and something more fundamental than those considerations. So we need to begin really at looking at the causes of man in order to understand the differences between male and female and what makes a man masculine versus what makes a, a woman feminine and, and so on. And there's much more that could be said uh, in that area, um, but we'll withhold commenting any further. Uh, in order to move on to the nature of man. What's the nature of man? Now, some of the some of what we say here can also be said of of, of woman, uh, but I would say to an, a, a, diff, a differing extent, to a different measure. Um, and so if we pull up here, I have another graphic. The nature of man, image of God. Is woman the image of God? Yes, woman is the image of God. Is man the image of God? Yes, man is the image of God. Um... And uh, there are, are, are various distinctions uh, between male and female uh, that, you know, brings out that image more or less in, in one or the other. Uh, but generally speaking, humanity is image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Um, but when you think of the difference between male and female, uh, we know that there is a, a distinct intellectual life of man that perhaps woman doesn't have. Uh, she has an intellectual life, but it's a distinct intellectual life from that of man. Um, when we're talking about righteousness or justice, uh, an act of will um, would be moral uh, rectitude, and, and that's very similar between male and female, although their duties are distinct, which would give them you know, differences, uh, dutiful differences, and, and therefore differences in terms of how righteousness instantiates in male and female, respectively. And then you have uh, holiness, uh, which can be equated to religion, and that respects man's worship of the true and living God. Um, and there are some some differences between male and female in terms of duty there as well. Uh Although perhaps not as prolific or profound, I mean, in in, uh, in the righteousness category as it is in the righteousness category. So, for example, when it comes to religious worship, um, men are 
there's a there's a calling on on men to be elders and deacons that perhaps I mean that definitely doesn't exist it doesn't exist for all men but it doesn't exist for any female um you know the the offices of elder and and deacon are restricted to male or men and uh, biblically and so they're they're but also uh there is something else that women brings women bring to the table that that men don't necessarily bring to the table and it's it's the, their their nurturing propensity uh, that you know and a lot of women have you know uh, profound abilities to be merciful and show mercy in a way uh, in ways that that men perhaps can't uh, or have a very difficult time doing and so you have each you know male and female bringing different things to the table that contribute to the whole in a very beautiful way and and by the time you get to the end of it you 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 see that there's a, a wonderful diverse tapestry that's been woven together uh on account of the differences between male and female the the material and formal differences between male and female i think that's very important to understand it's very important to respect and with the uh with the obliteration of those differences has come a, a, a very bland um, kind of outlook as to, you know, um, what the church would look like if, if all the differences were eradicated or what the household would look like if all the differences were eradicated. Not only do you get obvious heartache and, 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 and spiritual uh, destruction, but there's just a lack of beauty in that. It's a, it's a graying of everything and the diversity goes away. It's interesting that, um, you know, feminism began and and kind of propelled itself into the culture by advertising diversity and and playing on man's desire for diversity, which I think is 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 a godly uh, desire if rightly understood. Um, but then, as feminism took its hold and as it as it continued on and as it developed throughout history, you know, you get to the point where now you can't tell the difference between male and female. And, and femininity is actually being eradicated because of uh, the, the destruction of the distinctions uh, and the obviation of the distinctions in our society. And so it's a very sad thing. It, it kind of ends up in a diverse, less kind of grayed out nebulous whole. Um, and so these distinctions are very important. What makes man man is very important. What makes woman woman is very important. And it's not just the biology. It's also the formal cause. Uh, it, it's um, it, it gives men and women distinct propensities and affections uh, and, and, and distinct ways of exercising and instantiating those things. Um, let's talk about the acts of man. Um, actually, one, one thing that I would like to do is read from the Baptist Catechism. Question 13, how did God create man? God created man male and female after his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And we know that, you know, of course, that, that question is being answered with, re with respect to man's state of innocence, um, man's state of integrity before the fall. Of course, man had dominion over the creatures after the fall. We know that that's changed. But uh, with the intrusion of sin into the world. But if you look at the way the question and the answer are ordered, so the, the answer is ordered, God created man, male and female. So you have that difference between male and female, introduced before you have the image of God uh, stated, the, the in what that image consists, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, this insinuates that there is going to be distinct, in, uh, uh, distinct ways in which 
male and female instantiate that knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And then, of course, dominion over the creatures. Domestic life is between male and female, like household living. When you have male and female come together in marriage and then and then bearing children and such, is the way in which dominion is taken. Uh, and, uh, and and you have different or diverse ways in which male and female live domestically with one another. And so there's even a difference in how male and female relate to the dominion mandate. And this is before the fall, right? Uh, of course, the dominion mandate, we can't take dominion so long as there's sin. And that's why Christ has to take dominion for us. And so, of course, this looks different on the other side of the violation of the covenant of works and, and the other side of the fall. Um but all that to say that there's a definite distinction between male and female, even in terms of how the divine image in us is worked out and how it's how it's instantiated in either male or female, respectively. Now, let's look at the acts of man. Laser focusing in now on man. What makes a man man? And there are two ways we can divide up the acts of man, the way in which man is actual. There are necessary acts right? There, there are ways in which man is in virtue of his nature, right? There, there are ways in which man is in virtue of his nature. You can think of physiology. You can think of various propensities and affections uh, that, that men have that would distinguish him from woman. So there's, there's just things that man is uh, as a result of what he is, okay? But then there are contingent acts, and these contingent acts may or may not be given circumstance. So these contingent acts, and, and, and a lot of these contingent acts could be ordinary, but are nevertheless not determinative of the nature of man. And they're not necessarily resulting from the nature of man. Even if they're ordinary acts that a man engages in, they may not be necessary acts that a man engages in. So what man's nature permits him to do either ordinarily or extraordinarily, which things are good but may or may not obtain given various circumstances. Brothers, marriage fits into this category. I know that we don't want to recognize it given that our, our, our culture is, is, seems so antagonistic toward the holy institution of marriage. And, and so what we want to do is we want to overreact. We want to say that every man needs to get married and have kids, and that's what it means to be a man. Well, that's moving from the social position to the nature instead of moving from the nature of man to the social position. So that would be backwards. It would, it, it would be to do theological anthropology backwards. We want to move from the, from the nature of the thing to the, to the social circumstances of the thing and how, and how the thing navigates those social circumstances. We want to move from the nature of man and, and, and evaluate or assess what his social standing should be given his nature, not what his nature is given his social standing. Okay, uh, to to get that wrong, to flip that around, uh, to make contingent acts necessary acts is pastorally destructive, spiritually destructive, and, and can be spiritually abusive. And um, and so what we want to do is we want we always want to make that distinction. So a necessary act is what man is in virtue of him being a man uh, or a way man is in virtue of him being a man. Um, this is most easily seen in something like physiology. Um, a contingent act, though, is what man's nature permits him to do as a man that a woman wouldn't be able to do, which things are good 
but may or may not obtain given circumstance. Okay, given various circumstances, and and, and marriage would be a part of this. Um, you know, uh, going axe throwing <laughs> with your boys on a Saturday would be a part of this. Like, for a man to be a man, he doesn't have to engage in these acts. He is a man regardless of whether he engages in these acts, these these contingent acts. Okay, and so to consider the causes of man, the nature of man, the acts of man, now we can start asking questions regarding his social position because we've got a, a, a foundation laid for what man is, and we've answered it from the nature of man, all right? That nature of man is, is conditioned by the causes of man, but, but we, we work out from the nature, the principle of the thing. Uh, what makes a man a man? We work out from there. That comes first. That's real. That comes first. That's not determined by a social circumstance. It's determined by something, a, a metaphysical principle, something that's real and something that lies at the very heart of, of man. Uh, and so now we're set up to, to answer the social questions. The first question I want to ask may seem kind of unrelated, but I'm going to bring it back around after I ask the question and after I give a little bit of an answer. And the first question is this. Whether the Trinitarian quote-unquote roles is the archetype of the human family. Are the roles of the Trinitarian persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I don't even accept that we should use the word roles, but I'm using language that someone would use if they believe this. Are the roles of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determinative of the functionality of the human family? Uh, this gets us to the discussion about eternal functional subordinationism, EFS, or eternal relational authority subordination, or uh, something like that, eternal relational authority submission uh, in, in Bruce Ware's language. Uh, this gets us to that discussion. And so what an EFS person would say is that the son is eternally subordinate to the father. Uh, that is to say that according to his divinity and within the Godhead, the son is eternally submissive or eternally subordinate to the father. And a lot of people in this camp have said, well, there are actually three different wills in the Godhead. The father has a will, the son has a will, the Holy Spirit has a will, and so on. And they, and they basically, the insinuation is that the persons are, are, are one God really in virtue of being on the same team, that they agree in purpose and, thing of, and things of that nature. Um, and, and, and now I don't want to, be misunderstood, a lot of those who would affirm EFS would say, no, God is one essence, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one essence. They're the same substance, but they have different wills. Uh, one submits to the other. There's this kind of, you know, uh, gradation in the Godhead. Um, you know, the Father has a superior authority. The The Son has an authority that's subject to the Father, and so does the Holy Spirit. Um. And, and, and the reason that many EFS and ERAS uh, uh, proponents are in favor of that view is because they think it provides an objective grounding for the human family. And the reason they think it provides an objective grounding for the human family is, well, if, if the son is eternally submissive to the father, then that provides an objective and eternal basis for why the woman should submit to the man. So they're grounding gender distinctions and gender roles 
in the taxonomy and the roles, allegedly, that are in the Godhead. But if you, if you do what we just did, and, and you move from the causes of man to the nature of man, you think of man in terms of his principle, that is, in terms of his nature, then there's really no need to ground the gender distinctions or the gender roles, even, within the Trinitarian processions or the Trinitarian uh, relations or persons. There's no need to do that. In fact, to do that would be to, to augment God in order to facilitate human relations, and, and that's doing theology backwards. That's reading the, the created economy into theology, into the doctrine of God, and we don't want to do that. God comes first, and then we work from God outward. We work from God onward, and everything's downstream from the doctrine of God. So we would want to deny that the Trinitarian roles is the archetype of the human family. Jesus says in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. One what? One essence. I've done episodes on this in the past. If you want more on that, where we get in the text of Scripture and all of that, you can find that in the past here on my channel. But the Athanasian Creed says, Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. And that statement right there prevents us from saying that there's a higher authority and a lesser authority within the Godhead. The Nicene Creed, very God of very God. The Son is very God of very God. So everything that the Father is with the exception of being the Father, the Son is, okay? And so there's no gradation or essential difference between authorities or powers or anything like that within the Godhead. Now, I, I said I was going to bring all this back around to the discussion on man and what man is. And I've kind of hinted at it already, that if you follow our ordering moving from the cause of man to the nature of man to the acts of man, there is no need to augment the doctrine of the Trinity to facilitate human social relations. Um, and the reason for that is because God has created man a certain way, right? Material cause, formal cause, final cause. God has created man in a certain way. He's given man, he's created man with a particular nature, and man is what he is in virtue of that nature given him. All right, and so instead of trying to ground gender relations directly into the Trinity, we can work from creation rather than from creator. Uh, we work from creator in the sense that, yeah, the creator created the creation, but in what way did the creator create the creation? What nature did he give creatures and so on? And we work from those natures rather than trying to uh, mold God in a certain way that facilitates social relations, uh, whether that be social relations at the family unit or the or the civil level or what have you, or the church level. Um, we don't need to augment the Trinity to, to, to facilitate those social relations because God has given a nature to every created thing. And, and so we, we need to just ask that question, what is the nature of this or that? And in this case, we're asking the question, what is the nature of man? And we're working from that. And as we look at what the nature of man is, we distinguish him from female. And we realize that female, though she's of the same human nature, there are distinctions, there are differences that she's been created with and that, that man has been created with that distinguish those from one another, that distinguish male from female. And we don't have to, uh, we don't have to change the doctrine of the Trinity to, to get there. So... Basically, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm advertising our method here. 
we want to work from the nature of the thing. And, and if we work from the nature of the thing, not only do we get other social questions right, but we can avoid reading the economy into our theology, which is, we, there are really bad things that happen whenever we do that. We want to avoid that. The next question I want to ask, moving on. Whether the relation of the Son incarnate to the Father is a model for the human family. Okay? And there I think we can say, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven three says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And there are ERAS and EFS proponents that use that text to argue for EFS. But that text is talking about the incarnate Christ, and we know it's talking about the incarnate Christ because of verse 1. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate the Lord Jesus. And so he's talking about imitating Christ in, in verse 1, and the way that you imitate Christ is you look at how he lived our life, right? And that gets you to the incarnation. You're looking at the incarnate Christ as your example. And so that's what that's what Paul's talking about there. And so the Son, according to his humanity, and how he submits to the Father according to his humanity, does give us an example of authority and submission. But that's not to be read into the divine nature, or that's not to be read into the relation of Father and Son according to the divine nature within the uh, Godhead ad intra. Um, so, yes, there is a there is a model for the family uh, in, in Christ's submission to the Father, but it's Christ's submission to the Father according to Christ's human nature, not according to his divine nature. Uh, again, if we stick to if we stick to moving from the nature of the thing to to the to the relations of the thing, which has been our method here, you know, I think I think we can rightly observe that we want to argue when it comes to our lives as as men, we want to argue from the incarnate Christ. You know, he took our nature to himself. And so as he subsists in that human nature and as we see his life accounted in Holy Scripture, we want to look at him as our example. Uh, and the way in which we see him as our example is, is in his human nature, uh, revealed to us through the Scriptures. The next question is whether a man, this gets us to a very practical issue, whether a man can be a man if called to celibacy. Whether a man can be a man if called to celibacy. Now, uh, a, 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 I want to make a, 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 a brief um, qualification. I think celibacy is an exception to the rule. And that is to say, I, I, celibacy is not the norm. Celibacy is not ordinary. But celibacy is a reality. Okay, nevertheless, it's a reality. And so we want to ask the question whether a man can be a man if called to celibacy, and we have to affirm that he can. Why? Because a man is a man in virtue of his nature, right? The causes of man, the nature of man, again, the, the necessary acts of man is what make man a man, is what makes man a man. And so, so uh, yes, a, a, a man who's called to celibacy can meet, can, can meet the, or can fulfill his masculinity uh, as a celibate human being. First uh, Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. The implication of saying that a man cannot fulfill his masculinity if he's called to celibacy is is to say that 
neither Jesus or Paul were fulfilling their masculinity. Uh, but I believe both of them were, and they were doing so, uh, and in the case of our Lord, he was doing so perfectly. Uh, even though certain circumstances didn't apply to our Lord. Our Lord was never married. Um, our, our Lord was definitely celibate. Um, he was, uh, there, were, there were a number of circumstances that just didn't apply to him, marriage being one of them. And yet he perfectly had to have fulfilled what it meant to be a man. Um, what, about the, what about this question? Uh, this might be a little bit more controversial. Whether a man can be a man and fulfill his masculinity, if not called to celibacy, but remains without a wife. Can a man fulfill his masculinity, even if he's not called to celibacy and remains without a wife? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, he can. Um, we have to distinguish. It's not an absolute yes. Uh, we have to distinguish because the morality of the question depends on the reasons why a man remains without a wife. There could be sinful reasons why a man remains without a, without a wife, uh, but there could be legitimate reasons. Um, maybe there's no godly potential spouse. You know, I've talked to young men who, who are having a very difficult time. It's very difficult, probably more now than ever, to find a godly spouse, especially one in the same church. And so young men are having trouble with this all across the country. And so we have to ask the question, like, can those young men glorify God in their masculinity while they remain single, even if they're not called to celibacy? And I think the answer is yes. And of course, pursue a wife, uh, you know, and, and desire a wife, but at the same time realize that you can still glorify God in your present circumstance. And you can still be content in Christ in your present circumstance, right? Um, and so the morality of the question depends on the reasons why a, a man remains without a wife. No godly potential spouse available, you know, and other, other reasons. Um, and given the nature of man, as we've seen it above, yeah, he remains masculine. He remains male. He remains a man even without a wife. Um, you know, these are such important questions. You know, I've, I've, I've looked, I've seen online, I've seen guys say like, if, if you wear a hoodie, you know, that's not masculine. Like, come on, let's, let's, let's be scholastic and work from the nature of the thing. What makes a man a man? Do not trivialize it with a simple list of cultural do's and don'ts. That's ridiculous. Work from the metaphysics and come to a solid conclusion about what a man actually is. Um, it's very freeing to do that, by the way, because now you're not, you know, playing the part of the legalist, you know, making a, a crazy arbitrary list of do's and don'ts, uh, you know, filling people's minds with doubt, doubtful things and causing all sorts of unnecessary controversy. Move from the nature of things to the conclusion. Whether masculinity consists of a particular contingent act proper to man, we deny. So, uh, you know, we talked about necessary and contingent acts. A necessary act is a way that man is in virtue of what a man is. Um, a contingent act would be a way man could be, um, but may not necessarily be. Um, and so, you know... Um, Marriage, uh, you know, can a, can a man get married? Yes. And does a man fulfill a particular role in that marriage that a female doesn't? 
Yes. Um, but does he have to get married to be a man? No. So that's a contingent act that his nature as a man does not rely on. It doesn't depend on. So he can still fulfill his mascul masculinity even if that doesn't, um, even if that doesn't uh, uh, obtain. All these, all these questions that you get on, like, like, can I, like, what, what length of hair is proper for a man, or, or you know, um, what if you know, can can a man wear a kilt, you know, uh, in Scotland that's not a that's not a feminine thing to do. That's a masculine thing to do. Even though in the West you might consider it feminine, like further in the West, I mean, Scotland's in the West, but I mean, U.S. West, you might consider it feminine, but in 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 Scotland it's not. It's masculine, right? And so, you know, who who defines those things? And part culture does, and either way you go, whatever question you know, however you answer that question, uh, you can still fulfill your masculinity. So. Um, you know, a Scottish person is fulfilling his masculinity even while wearing a kilt, as much as I don't like to say that as an American. For all those who are Scottish, I have good Scottish friends. Um, I jest, I jest. But whether masculinity consists of a particular contingent act proper to man, which is a lot of times what you see in the cultural kind of pop level conversations, like if you don't do this, you're not a man. If you do this, you're a man. Like if, if you go, um, you know, uh, set yourself on fire and chop a tree down at the same time at 1.30 a.m. in the morning, like, that's what that's what it is to be a man. If you grow a beard, you're a man. But if you don't grow a beard, you're not a man. And then you have the re reverse culture, right? Like, coming out of the 50s and 60s. Well, if you don't grow a beard, you're a man. If you do grow a beard, you're a reprobate. Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, come on. Like, you can still fulfill your masculinity regardless of whether you do any of those things. Hopefully you're not lighting yourself on fire chopping a tree down at 1.30 a.m. in the morning because your masculinity doesn't consist in that, right? It, again, proper method uh, gives way to proper content. So if, if we argue from the causes of man to the nature of man to the acts of man to the social position of man, if we have that order, I think it's... I think we'll be... A, will be able to navigate these social issues in a much more effective, pastorally responsible way. All right. And, and by the way, like I interacted with scripture a little bit here. There's tons of scripture that we could bring to bear on this con uh, on this conversation. There's a lot of exegesis that could be done that I'm not doing here. Um, but suffice it to say that I think even scripture gives us this order. Um, because you see the creation of man, the efficient cause, the material cause, the formal cause, the final cause, all of that is in Scripture. Uh, you, you, you don't even necessarily need Scripture to to formulate the fourfold causality and apply it to, mass, to, to what it means to be a man. But Scripture gives it to us as well. You, 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 can, you can see it in nature, but Scripture gives it to us as well, and it's very clear about it. And then from that, you have a nature. You have what a man is, and then you you move forward from that in understanding masculinity and, and the social positioning and the and the constructs and the and the social behaviors all flow from the nature, right? And and whether those social behaviors are necessary or contingent, you know, it is something that has to be sorted and worked through. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are contingent that are being ne made necessary things, 
and you have a whole host of young men who are sitting there and they're, they're, they're seeing this stuff on social media and they're seeing this stuff coming from their friends. They're seeing this stuff come from pulpits and they're asking themselves, am I a man? And I want to say, yes, you can be a man even if a lot of these contingencies don't apply to you. Like even if you, even if you, even if you're not married right now, you can still answer your masculinity, right? Uh, you can still be a man, and you can still glorify God as a man at present in your present circumstance. And I think that's so pastorally helpful. You have all these imperatives on social media. You don't have to listen to those, right? You don't have to listen to any of those. What you do have to do is you have to understand who you are, um, who you've been created to be, uh, what you've been created to be in light of Holy Scripture, and uh, and glorify God and enjoy Him forever, you know? And um, don't get caught up in all the weeds. Don't get caught up in all the weeds. It's very burdensome to think that you need to live by every imperative that you see on social media. You don't. Join a solid local church, show up there week in, week out, glorify God in your churchmanship. You can be a man without all of the cultural hurrah, hurrah stuff that you see on social media. You can answer your masculinity and glorify God where you are. And if you're not married and you want to be married, pursue it. Pursue marriage. If you're not married and you're not called to celibacy, you should pursue marriage. But your identity as a man doesn't hinge on the moment you get married, right? It, it hinges on what God has created you as, what God has created you to be, and furthermore, uh, who you are in, in Jesus Christ and, and the duties you've been given in life. Uh, there's a way to live godly uh, at present. So just take that to heart. I hope that's helpful. I hope it's I hope it's freeing. I hope it's freeing in the sense that you see that yes, it's a godly thing to desire a spouse and to pursue a spouse. But also, right now, you can glorify God as a man. I'm speaking to you, young men. You can glorify God as a young man right now. And these two things aren't opposed to one another. Pursuing a spouse, desiring a spouse, is not opposed to at the same time glorifying God as a man where you are right now. And you can do that. So if this was helpful to you, I, I recommend you share it. Um, if it was helpful to you, maybe it'll be helpful to somebody else. Uh, other than that, I uh, wish you all a wonderful rest of the day. God bless you.